having the versatility to actually create something and build something from the bottom up puts us oddly in a really interesting position. Because if you're at a major brand that has existing distribution and existing supply and you're generating billions in, in sales and you know driving hundreds of millions in profit, the concept of pivoting that, are you kidding me? Like the risk associated with that is extraordinary. But unlike being a battleship, we're like a speedboat. We're starting from a much smaller position so we can build with intention. We can design and think about design constraints where we're only going to do things that are mindful of performance and sustainability. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where I talk with leaders across America who are making the world a better, more sustainable place. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, founder of Consensus Digital Media. And today, I'm talking with Charles Dimmler, co-founder and CEO of Checkerspot, and Matt Sturbins, GM of Checkerspot's Design Lab in Salt Lake City. Before this conversation, I rarely thought about where plastic came from, despite the fact that it's an ingredient in nearly everything. And, turns out, not the most friendly for the environment or our health. So inventing new ways to make the materials that comprise everything in our daily lives is actually pretty fascinating. And in an era where we as a country continue to talk about supply chain reliability, this topic is more relevant now than ever. Checkerspot was founded in 2016, and they're proving that performance and sustainability can go hand in hand. What first got me excited was the company's Wonder Alpine skis. These innovative, high-performance skis, they're made from algae. Yep, algae. Charles and Matt's passion for winter sports and the appreciation for the natural world surrounding the slopes is evident as we speak. And it reminded me of my childhood happy place on a chairlift heading up the mountains in Colorado. So with that in mind, I'm honored to talk with Matt and Charlie. Welcome, guys. If each of you guys could just give full name and what you do, um, start with that, and then we'll kind of jump into the more fun questions. Matt, you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matt Sturbins um, here at the uh, Design Lab in Salt Lake City, uh, which I am the general manager of. And in addition to that, I lend a hand in the board sports, winter sports, and material sales side. Charlie, over to you. I'm uh, Charles Dimmler. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Checkerspot. Nice. I want to get to Checkerspot and and the technology and all the, the business, the philosophy, the values, all that. But the... You know, the Colorado boy in me is curious how um, how did you guys each get into into outdoor sports? Matt, you want to kick us off this time? My background from a Midwesterner was, you know, just skiing moguls. I didn't have the family support network to support ski racing. You know, skiing was one thing that stayed with me. I continue to improve at it. The more I invested in skiing, the more I realized how much I didn't yet experience within skiing. You could take soccer, football, baseball. Yeah, you could change the venue, but how much does it really change? The local high school field to Wrigley Field in Chicago. I mean, yeah, it's an insane experience, but the bases are the same distance apart. The field has a relatively same framework. It's the crowd and the noise and the sights. I get that. But like the game is still the same. Skiing, your abilities are transcended based on the environment that you're put in. And there's no two environments the same. And you can never say you've skied at all. There's lifetimes of skiing in these mountains through the window I'm looking at right now here in Utah. You know, to attempt to ski all of what I'm looking at right now would take a full lifetime. 
And it's just one little corner of a little mountain range in a huge world of mountains that have wonderful aspects to ski on. Nice. <laughs> Charlie, what's your path to the slopes? I was a really active kid playing a bunch of different sports, but pretty much was outside always. Like I, I just grew up in a, in a place that had a lot of open space. And when, when you're a kid, five, 10, 15 square miles is more than enough to, to get lost, get into trouble, explore and kind of find yourself. And just to give a little bit of specificity, like I was known when there were snowstorms that came through when I was in middle school to high school, it's one of the most magical times because on the East coast, when you get, you know, like a foot of snow, everything shuts down. There's no cars on the road. And I would just get ready to go and walk miles to friends' houses and like show up at their doorstep. And they're like, what, how, how did you get here? I'm like, I walked and like, you're crazy. Like, why would anybody do that? There's a snowstorm. And I just, I absolutely loved it. Fortunately, I had parents that were really supportive that embraced this, that, you know, knew that I had some level of judgment to take care of myself. And they, they were in support of my, like getting out and just discovering. And so without question, gravitating to the West coast and to the mountains out here was influenced by the, the period of time from high school to when I was talking earlier about working on Wall Street, because I lived in New York for nearly a decade. And when I was in New York City, it was like everything shut off in terms of access to the outdoors. And I was working long hours as an investment banker. And it just felt like a part of my soul was being suppressed. And that was a huge reason I decided to come out West. And my wife and I have now been out here for more than 20 years. And this is, this is home. You both end up in this amazing industry in a fun industry industry. A lot of people I think uh, envy working in. So start with uh, Charlie. How, how did you make the pivot into what you're doing now? Well, I kind of, I don't know that I would describe it as a pivot because when I think back over the course of my career after college, which is now 25, 26 years in, um, I've, I've always been focused on biotechnology. So when I started off right out of college, I went to Wall Street and worked for a few years as a, a junior investment banker, but by and large was focused on healthcare, life sciences, biotech, because I studied science when I was an undergrad. I was, I was thinking about the possibility of going to, to medical school at the time decided against that, went to Wall Street, spent a few years, and then ultimately moved from New York to California and joined a company that was focused on biotechnology, developing and commercializing therapeutics, human therapeutics, and cell therapeutics. And I was there for about eight or nine years before leaving to join another company that used the exact same technologies and tools, but applied for industrial applications, specifically going after renewable energy, transportation fuel based on oil that came from a renewable resource. And that really provided the foundation for what would ultimately become CheckerSpot. What we're doing at CheckerSpot is 100% built on the shoulders of that past experience. Okay, so let's get to CheckerSpot. How would you describe it to the average guy on the street? To the average guy on the street or to one of the classmates of my children, 
I, I describe it as a materials company. And so everything that we use from the clothes that we wear to the computers that we use to the houses that we live in, the cars that we drive, the planes that we fly, everything comes down to materials and ingredients. And what I try to explain is that a lot of where these things come from and are created by is petroleum, fossil fuels. And most people, they may not be able to dive into the, the chemistry of petroleum or fossil fuels, but they can certainly like understand and appreciate that this is a massive input to everything that, that touches our daily lives. And so I go on to explain that we've developed an alternative to petroleum, that we can create really unique oils based on just bleeding edge biotechnology capabilities. Yeah, I never imagined that materials could be so fascinating. So you're building Checker Spot, and then Matt, you enter the scene. Did y'all meet on the chairlift? Yeah, I would assume that the listeners are expecting that we met on a chairlift. There are not as many vehicles of engagement like a chairlift in the world. You know, maybe an amusement car ride. It's an elevator in every aspect, shape, and form, but suspended by cables in nature. And it does, you know, attract a very you know, unique setting to explore people's lives. And, you know, you only have two minutes to get it all out. So better get on with the story. And who knows, maybe it ends up being such a good story. You ski with that person for the rest of the afternoon or maybe the rest of your life. I I really, really, really enjoy that aspect of skiing. And um, while we're not necessarily focused on mechanized skiing, the chairlift is an amazing vehicle to, to meet new people. It's a very fulfilling experience, sometimes even better than the skiing itself. But no, we didn't meet on the hill. Uh, we didn't meet on the skin track. We didn't meet the ski shop. That's beautiful. Yeah. The chairlift is my happy place. Like it, It's a place where you can find peace and everything goes at a different pace and crisp air. And I just, I love it. But I feel like business partnerships for those who are afraid of commitment like me, yeah, that's scarier than marriage. What moment when either of you thought, yeah, we're going to do something really amazing together? There was one moment where I thought, am I recruiting Matt or is Matt recruiting me? Because without explaining where we were going or what we were going to do, he was like, yeah, get in the Sprinter van. Like we head up and we're at the foot of a trailhead in the Wasatch. And he's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> like go where? Like, let's, let's go up. And so we start hiking. He's got a backpack. He doesn't tell me what's in it. We hike for a while get up to this overlook that's just gorgeous around Salt Lake City. And he's like, yeah, let's take a break. And we ended up, I don't know, Matt, we spent probably an hour, maybe two hours just in that spot. And he had brought a couple of beers and just started talking about life, just started talking about things not related to work or to our professional experience. And I'm I'm sharing that because it brought to life for me in the moment. There have been situations, events that similarly do that, where at the end of the day, when you think about what we're doing or why we're doing, it all comes down to human connection and our connection with nature. And I don't know if I've ever voiced this quite in this way to Matt, but after you know we headed back down the trail, like I knew that this had to happen. I knew that we were going to partner in this way and work together and really tackle some of these challenges. That was a defining moment for me as I look back at the history of Checker Spot. 
And what you're describing for folks, I think, is basic material science, right? It's what ingredients go into the products that are made. As you began Checkerspot, began to look for a new, better, more sustainable ingredient for the product, what was that search like and where did you land? The search is, is complicated to be really direct and, and blunt about it because the opportunity set is astonishingly vast. I mean, it, it's it's huge. There are millions of products that are created and come from not, not only petroleum and fossil fuels, but also um, natural oils. And by natural oils, I'm talking about things like palm oil and soy. But the thing is, millions of products derive from those inputs. But if you thought about it in terms of building blocks or Legos, or if you thought about it in the context of a palette of different opportunities, like different colors, there's a really finite set of possibility with those commodity-based oils. And there are hundreds of other kinds of building blocks, other kinds of colors that plants produce naturally, but they've never been explored or interrogated by people because there's been no way to, to grow them or to supply them at any meaningful scale. And that's the single thing that is revolutionary. Being able to utilize tools of biotechnology that are now you know, 30, 40 years old, where we can access the genes from those plants and utilize those genes and produce at big commercial scale things that are novel, but that don't require or aren't dependent on extracting petroleum from the earth, that don't have the negative environmental consequence. And so really focused on the use cases that amplify, that bring to life, that demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that this concept of performance versus sustainability, it's a false choice. You can have both. Awesome. The one host material that I know we've read about coming out of your shop is algae. So how does algae go from a molecule to a product, namely Wonder Alpine skis? The algae is a catalyst. It's, it's a biocatalyst. We're basically feeding sugar to microalgae that the microalgae eat it, they consume it, they metabolize it and convert that carbon in the sugar and direct it to produce oil. It's no different than kind of what happens if you ate a lot of cake and sugar and Coca-Cola and a bunch of sugary stuff. What happens to that to you physiologically? You convert it to fat. Same thing. That fat is oil. Microalgae do the same exact thing. Second, I think it's fascinating to recognize that all of the petroleum that we extract from the earth, it's fossilized algal oil. Sometimes there's a misnomer that it's dinosaurs that have been you know, fossilized. No, it's microalgae and plant-based matter that's been sitting there for millennia that we're extracting. And so to think in really simple terms about what we're doing, we're sort of accelerating the process of getting to that oil but where we can really be precise and direct specifically what kind of oil do we want to get to that have unique chemistries that then make better products. It seems like there's a couple aspects of this. The first, I suspect there's an incredible strength here in mitigating any supply chain risk or, or crises. 
How do you guys see that as a function of your business? You know, anytime that you can bring a material to life in-house, even if it's a one single component of a very vast network of bill of materials, it just eases everything, right? You have the ability to, to manage at least one of those various moving targets in the world of supply chain management. But more notably is in pursuit of this democratization and commercializing of the technology, we're working hard landing a neighboring organization to work with us in the material application set like we have already started to ourselves with Wonder Alpine. And the inquiry was, was, was met with, you know, optimism and intrigue, but there wasn't a real strong like anchor to call to action to pursue. It wasn't until we, we saw, you know, a, a natural weather event and we had that deep freeze in the South that shut down uh, a lot of the chemical industry, which is where, you know, a lot of the materials for, for the space that we were exploring with our, with our algal cast urethanes uh, were, were coming from. And when that supply chain broke, it fractured confidence wildly throughout this industry. And all of a sudden they were calling on us. And so supply chain has had a tremendous impact on our business. Partly it's allowed us to get to where we are today in the pace of time that we've had. And then two, just to be able to bring product to market with others in defense of their challenges is a huge you know, opportunity for us too, to realize the impact of domestic biomanufacturing. Yeah. The other thing that jumped out, um, which has been, I think, implicit in a lot of things we, we've already covered, but let's just make it explicit. You're creating a better performance product, but you're creating a better product. And so I want to talk a little bit about kind of how doing good has become part of your mission, how, how you guys think about sustainability a little bit. I love it. And one quick thought is that most leading consumer brands see that. You have some awesome brands that are putting out targets around carbon neutrality that are really taking seriously, how do we even manage you know, scope two, scope three emissions? It's really fantastic and inspiring to see that. Now, having the versatility to actually create something and build something from the bottom up puts us oddly in like a really interesting position. Because if you're at a major brand that has existing distribution and existing supply, and you know, you're generating billions in, in sales and you know, driving hundreds of millions in profit, the concept of pivoting that, tearing it down and rebuilding it, are you kidding me? Like the risk associated with that is extraordinary. But unlike being a battleship, we're like a speedboat. We're starting from a much smaller position. So we can build with intention. We can design and think about design constraints where we're only going to do things that are mindful of performance and sustainability. And that's really working to our advantage. And, and ideally, like the strategy is how can we show this way? How can we show these possibilities and then enable and empower those parties that are trying to affect the change and to make it as frictionless and as easy as possible for them to adopt this way of business. Clearly, sustainability was part of your mission from day one, it sounds like, yeah. And as a brand, I feel like the way that we speak to sustainability is through the lens of responsibility. And the responsibility we have as, as a materials innovation company is to you know, divulge the details of how these materials are coming to life. What is, what is their composition? Um, what is the data in terms of how it performs 
that is unique. And that's a responsibility that we feel we owe to the market. So we, we don't always necessarily measure our progress based on sustainability. Our technology is built on a renewable bio-based application that has a much more sustainable track of influence as we continue to evolve on this planet. But the, the brand itself, consumers are looking for more transparency in the products that they're buying. They are taking on a greater consciousness of ownership and, and, and to like, what is the impact that this product has on the planet? What do I do with it in the life? And I think that's a really mature and sincere approach to consumerism and that we as a brand modern in our times launched in 19, still in our adolescence in today's day, we owe to our audience. And so we see that as a responsibility that we possess that we need to make whole with our consumers. Yeah. And it goes beyond, I think, product for you guys. From what I remember reading, your entire operation is climate neutral certified. You power with renewables. What's next? What is the long-term sustainable path? Because you guys are already doing all the things that people are trying to get to by 2030 for you know whatever their ESG report says they're going to do. You guys are already doing it. So what's even what's the long-term play here? How, how do you guys um, improve on even that? I mean, it, it feels a lot to me like we've only just gotten started. I mean, we we now have five materials that are on the market and there's definitely an enthusiasm, if not a, a zeitgeist around Wonder Alpine and the brand. And we have within Checkerspot a portfolio of customers and partners, some of which we've announced and some of which we have kept confidential, but there's real momentum. When I think about the future and I think about what we're doing, we're so much a rounding error in, in making a dent on the climate crisis that there's so much more for us to do. And we have a plan to tackle that. And specifically, it involves more products. It involves, you know, expanding Wonder Alpine. I mean, this year, you know, we expanded the SKU mix to include snowboards. We've introduced a new material that brings to life what's possible with manufacturing flashings, which is really cool. We're really excited about that. We have a portfolio of ingredients and materials that we're developing biologically as well as through chemistry and material science. And because of the way the world is now and these targets that I was alluding to before that brands have placed, we're seeing more and more demand. And so for us, it's all about, okay, how do we now in this, you know, we call it the next pitch of our climb. In this next pitch of our climb, how do we empower these folks? How do we make the technology available in a way to open source it so that we can bring people together and accelerate the transition towards a post-petroleum world because we're running out of time. Give us a sense for how you guys are, what you're hearing about or thinking about or, or what folks are talking about when it comes to investors and entrepreneurs. Why are they caring about this? Where does this go from here? To give you one example, we have been working on a pilot program over the course of the last 18 months thinking about how we can put novel materials that come from our wing platform into the hands of product designers and to see you know what might they innovate based on this technology and that's going exceedingly well and that would be an example of something to stay tuned to with Checkerspot because there's going to be more examples of that and it really i think dovetails with what you're talking about in helping 
other product developers and entrepreneurs transition to newer technologies that are derived from biology, that are derived from nature. I also think the SEC is very actively pushing for disclosures, much in the way that there are accounting rules for financial reporting, pushing for disclosures to report your ESG um, endeavors, and like where, where you stand and how you're progressing. And, and I think that that's going to be a pretty significant catalyst in, again, this transition to, to a more mindful way to unite business and even social purpose. Um, it, I think it's also noteworthy to just reflect on the announcement last week from the White House, this executive order um, to stimulate the bioeconomy because the White House and by extension, Capitol Hill, they see that it isn't just about climate change or the climate crisis. It also extends to how do we stimulate economic development? How do we stimulate uh, you know, supply chain resilience? How do we think about global competitiveness? And you know, looking back at history, innovation has always been at the, the forefront, at the epicenter of those considerations. And so I think it's a really interesting time to begin to see how technology is revitalizing the economy, revitalizing entrepreneurship and the creation of new ventures in pursuit of some of the things that big established, you know, fortune 500 companies know are important. And too, like the way that we're approaching materials to date, because we're bringing a lot of the product to market ourselves to start is that we have kind of helped reduce some of the rigidity that has existed historically in the manufacturing process. Uh, working with materials and classifications like our own today with cast urethanes and rigid foam, everything required fairly heavy lift of industrial manufacturing equipment and processes. And, and today we're realizing ways to work with these materials in a much leaner way where we don't have the, the great waste off streams to deal with. And I feel like as new coming business owners and designers, entrepreneurs, they're exploring a, there needs to be a basis of renewable innovation within the context of this product that I seek to bring to market. That is what has become a necessary uh, component to the design and its value proposition to market. Nobody's going to launch something to market today and completely ignore its impact on planet. At Consensus, we get to focus on uplifting stories, which I really love. For us, it's more important than ever to find hope and optimism for the future. So what makes each of you hopeful? What would you say to inspire listeners? For me, I mean, obviously, it's this collaboration and, and unity. You know, Charlie spoke about that already and that we can't do this alone. Innovation and systemic adoption comes from the empowerment of which we seek to implore. And together, we can have a significant impact on the latest trends in, in materials, as well as the impact that consumer products are having on the planet. Yeah, for me, it would be that the experience that we've all shared over the last two or three years between the global unrest, the pandemic, the climate crisis being really front and center and visible, the knock-on effects from all of those things, extending to things like you know income inequality and mental health issues. Like, there's a lot that is is on us and i hear really frequently from people what's it all for like what can i do you know i take as many opportunities as possible to try and reframe that and say yeah there's a lot of things that are heavy that are hard that we're confronted with but we do have some agency 
we do have the ability to do something about it. And that extends to thinking about what you support, where you spend your money. When you voiced a moment ago, um, you know, the holidays are coming up. Something that really resonates with me is don't buy stuff that you don't need. Don't buy stuff just to do that or to give something just to do it. Like think in a really considered, thoughtful way about making purchases that enrich your life, that are better for you and take into account how companies and brands are really trying to deliver things that that are meaningful. And I'm surprised that it didn't come up in my mind earlier in the conversation, but what Yvonne Chouinard and Patagonia has just done and announced is a just phenomenal example of that that is super inspiring that you know, we should take note of that we need to think about how we come together, what Matt was saying in the context of community and fellowship and how we have agency and the outcome of what happens next and to not get too sucked into the volatility, the uncertainty, the unknown that exists. And yeah, I'll just stop by remarking that going back to that the early days of Matt and I getting to know one another, one of the things that we saw great parity, a good comparison in is building a business and navigating the complexities and challenges. It's very analogous to being on the skin track and exploring the mountains. And there's just something really emotive and wholesome and positive when we reconnect with nature and manage the risks that are involved with it. And find a wholeness in fellowship. Huge thanks to Charlie Dimler and Matt Sturbins for the fascinating conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gon. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director, Kate Tucker. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week.